nobody took us serious and we were more seen as a toy. And really this market was not well served by anybody. So nobody really made profit there just because the structure of the market was all very much sales driven and then manual paper-based onboarding. So it made it very expensive for the incumbents, even at those expensive prices to serve those merchants profitably. So nobody took us too serious. This is Unicorn Builders, where we tell the untold stories of the founders who've defied the odds and built billion-dollar companies. Here's your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines.io. Now, let's jump straight into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Mark Kreis, co-founder of SumUp, a mobile point-of-sale solution that's raised $1.5 billion in funding. Mark, thanks for chatting with me today. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, no problem. So to kick things off, could we just start with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background? Sure. My name is Mark. I actually finished the university in 2002, just after the dot-com crisis. So went into banking, um, did real estate structured finance, which then imploded. And then through a couple of turns, ended up in the startup ecosystem and started uh, like two other startups, but then started somewhat in 2012 together with my co-founder, Daniel. Nice. Very cool. And we're going to dive deep into some up here shortly, but two quick questions that we like to ask just to better understand what makes you tick as a founder. First one is what founder do you admire the most and what do you admire about them? So the one I picked is Sam Sell, who's the founder of Equity Office and probably the biggest real estate investor in the United States. It's very, very interesting to see how he managed from nothing kind of building up probably one of the biggest real estate companies in the world. Um, because that's basically the, the, the area where I came from before and then the startup land. So I have a lot of admiration for him. Nice. Yeah. He's such an interesting character. I read his book a while back. I don't remember the name. It's like, am I being subtle or something along those lines? And it was a, a fascinating read and, and really fun to hear you know, his journey and, and everything that he's accomplished. He's a just very, very interesting entrepreneur. Indeed. Indeed. And not taking himself too serious despite all of the success. Yep. Absolutely. I love that. Now let's talk about books as well. So we can't mention his book there, but let's talk about some other books. Are there any books that really come to mind that had a major impact on how you view the world and, and how you think about company building? It's, I think that actually a ton of books that we actually produce in that space. I think probably my favorite is Loon Shots. Not sure you know that one that talks about how, especially in a growth company, you need to separate phases. So you make sure that you still kind of merge just younger innovation pieces of the company and allow them to grow more as a seed stage, series A, series B kind of company uh, without killing them in the process that inevitably come with a larger company. Mm, you know, it's a book I've not heard about, which always makes me a little bit angry when someone comes on and says a book that I haven't read. I, I consider myself someone who reads a lot of books, but it's always fun to hear about a new one. And that definitely sounds fascinating. So I'll add that to my Amazon cart here after the interview. You should, you should. I, mean, I can also come up with all the all the standard books, but by now I have the feeling there's like 10 great startup organization books that everybody has read by now. Yeah, I think 80% of founders that come on, they say, you know, built to last or hard thing about hard things. So it's always fun digging a bit deeper and, and going to those other books that aren't so obvious that founders have been inspired by. Exactly. I mean, those are all also very good staples out there. Yeah, Absolutely. Now let's dive into sum up. So take us back in history, 2012, what was going on in 2012 and what were those early conversations like as you guys were discussing this idea? So, I mean, I lived in the US before where obviously card acceptance is pretty much ubiquitous in, uh, at least in New York. And then you come back to Germany and you realize 
that that's most definitely not the case. And small merchants are very much neglected by incumbent players. And I think literally when we started, payment was something like a luxury good, where it was really, really expensive to offer payments to your consumers. And we literally set out to change that. And we had one, actually two pretty big developments at that time. So first, there was the internet at the point of sale, which made the whole infrastructure much, much easier. And with a cell phone that by 2012, actually pretty much was everybody had one, um, helped us to basically have a supercomputer at the point of sale that we were able to attach card payments to. Fascinating. And in those early days, what were some of those major challenges that you were experiencing and, and how did you overcome those challenges? I mean, the, the, in payments is a very, very tough space because it's the, the market in itself is very, not fragmented, but very suffers from a lot of legacy structures. So I think the, the big ones to overcome was one, obviously the regulatory piece, because as a payment provider, you're regulated just like a, and a little bit of small bank license. So getting an e-payments institutional license there. And then I think the second one was a whole payment infrastructure, including the hardware, to really build a solution that uh, makes it very, very easy for merchants to accept card payments. And then, uh, yeah, that's pretty much those two. And could you just paint a picture for us of what that landscape looked like back in 2012 when it comes to who the big players were and then you know, what market was kind of underserved or neglected that you witnessed? So, that, I mean, we, we started in like four countries on launch and launched in like 10 countries within the first three, four months after launching. And the payment industry is very interesting because especially at the point of sale, you usually have like two or three billion dollar companies in every market and then another 20 smaller players um, there. And very few of them go cross-border just by the nature of your home market being very, very large. And then you need both the regulatory piece and the technical setup being somewhat uh, country-bound. So when we started, they were, they were all pretty much the same in all the different countries, but usually large players that used to be part of banks and were split off banks. And uh, just by the nature of even once around, offered a five-year contract or at least a three-year contract when we started to then also charge the merchant 30 40 bucks a month in fixed fees plus percentage fees and so on so you before you know it you have a cap driver that does a thousand dollars in in monthly volume paying 90 100 bucks for that solution so literally giving up 10 percent of their of the takings for card payments um, and then we came along and we offered them the same service at one and a half percent lowering the price from like 90 to week 12 for them and were you hated in the market then by the legacy players, you know, coming in like that and, and undercutting them on price? How did they feel about that? And you know, what were some of their reactions in those early days as the startup was breaking into the market and you know, eating up their profit margin? So first of all, nobody took us serious and we were more seen as a toy. And really this market was not well served by anybody. So nobody really made profit there just because the structure of the market was all very much sales driven and then manual paper-based onboarding. So it made it very expensive for the for the incumbents, even at those expensive prices to serve those merchants uh, profitably. So nobody took us too serious. And then there were a couple that said, okay, we can do this easily ourselves. And then just kind of got the dongle connect to the phone and then realized that there's much more to do there. And then most of them closed the activities in the next couple of years. And as you were expanding country by country, what was that like from a regulatory perspective? Was this just a regulatory nightmare? Like, were you spending all of your time dealing with regulation-related 
matters? And is it different, I'm guessing, as you move country by country? Or is the, are there some similarities that make it easier to jump from one country to another? It's within Europe. There's a way of passporting. So that makes it slightly easier because you kind of have one license in one European country and then kind of comply to the local laws, but kind of bring your, bring your home license to the different countries. Then we went to Russia, Brazil, and so on, that were very, very different countries. And they just literally start from scratch. The good thing is that all central banks look kind of for the same things. So once you understand the concept, there's still a ton of paperwork and a ton of legal bureaucracy, but at least you know what you need to deliver and what they're looking for. Are there any specific countries that stand out that were just very hard to to penetrate it and, and bring this to market there? I think every market is different in itself. But then at the same time, once you learn how to tackle a couple, there's a lot of commonalities and you're very much able to copy a lot of stuff you did in a different market. And I was watching one of your previous interviews and the interviewer said, you're the square of Europe and you were quick to correct him. No, no, we're the square of the world. Uh, we're all over the place. So how many countries are you in today? We have 36 countries. That's the whole of Europe, Brazil, Chile, Colombia, Peru, and the United States. Wow. And could you give us an idea just so we can understand the scale and just how, how big the company really is? You know, what are some of those numbers and metrics that you could maybe share? Well, we have about 4 million merchants on the platform, pretty much across those 36 countries. Still pretty much fast growing at like 40% plus growth year over year. And what's like an average merchant like for you? Is it like a mom and pop coffee shop? Is it a you know, small chain? What's the average customer? Or is it hard to really have like an average customer? It's more the, the micro nano space. So it's 70% of our merchants are sole traders. So I think anybody below 10K a month in volume usually defaults to us. So we are the clear market leader in this long tail segment up to 10K. And then in the, let's say, next segment, 10,000 to 100,000 euros of monthly volume or dollars of monthly volume. That's then where we are more the, the attackers, I would say. And I think a lot of the conversations I hear, and, and maybe that's you know just because I'm here in Silicon Valley, but what a lot of people talk about is, you know, you don't want to do SMB. It's all about enterprise. Enterprise is, is where the money's at. So early on, did you ever have any pushback from investors to say, hey, you know, maybe we shouldn't do the, the small merchants or the SMBs. We should go after the big guys. Did you have any of those debates early on? And and what did you do to you know, come to that decision that it was always going to be, or you know, the primary focus was going to be SMBs? I think the premise of first focus, especially when you start, was always SMBs, just by the nature of you basically launching a minimum viable product, which then doesn't, doesn't do all of the stuff that the enterprise uh, people expect from you. But we're now actually in year 11, and we're just starting out with our enterprise efforts and have seen pretty good success with this in the last, let's say, one, two years. We were actually serving some of the biggest stadium operators in the world. Um, so doing like concert, football games, and so on. So really serving like the, the largest merchants. And are more and more of the transactions happening with the phone to the point of sale system, or is the majority still with cards? It's, I mean, the phone is definitely picking up. Google Pay and Apple Pay are doing a very good job. I have to admit that I didn't recently check statistics, um, but it's definitely rising. Do you but think still more, still more cards today. Do you think 10 years from now, cards like in the physical form are still going to be a thing? Are they still going to exist? And yes, probably not. But the, I mean, in, in the end, the phone is also just another form factor for the card. I don't think with technology evolving, we don't need a plastic card anymore. And you can literally put the, the chip into whatever form factor of the future. I think the phone is a pretty good spot for that one. 
Yeah, makes a lot of sense. And, and that's nice to hear because every time I lose a credit card, I just think like, man, there has to be a better way here. Like, I can't believe we're still carrying around these barbaric cards when there's a, you know, a phone that works very well for the same purpose. So glad to hear that we're, at, we're 10 years out there, hopefully. You're still sitting in Silicon You're sitting in Silicon Valley and you're still using plastic? <laughs> still using plastic. It's uh, not accepted everywhere. They're getting better, but it's still, uh, still use cards a lot. Yeah, it's just been Boulder last week, and there at least uh, everything was uh, was uh, phone based. At least I, I paid everywhere phone based. Yeah, I think it probably just depends. You know, like the restaurant you're going to, if it's like a quick serve restaurant or a coffee shop, I think they're a bit you know faster to adopt. If it's a like nice restaurant that you go to for dinner, it's still yeah the barbaric system of paying with a card. Well, we're we're getting there. We're getting there. Yeah, send send send, send them to me, and I'll upgrade them. <laughs> Sounds good. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. And how big is your presence in the US compared to Europe? So yes, probably like five to ten percent of our total total volume. And is the long term plan to you know, dramatically increase that, or is this more about covering the rest of the world? I think the really the opportunity or the problem we're solving for merchants is pretty much a global problem, and we're growing very very nicely across all of our markets. So we don't have like a strategic thought that now country A needs to be super successful, but we're literally going out and investing at like twelve month or below payback periods to really just grow the business all around. Do you typically go to a country when you're expanding there for the first time? You mean me personally? Yeah, or maybe in the early days, were you going there? In the early days, I did. By now, uh, I've never been in Colombia and I've never been in Peru. But I've, I've been to most of the others. Nice. I've been to both those countries. Highly recommend. They're, uh, it's a good vacation. You'll enjoy it. Yeah, that's, uh, the, the, that's the problem. Usually when you go to a summer country, it's not a vacation because you stop by the office and there's so much fun stuff to do. Um, that vacation is over before you start. Yeah, it makes sense. And how does that feel to you? You know, seeing your products out in the real world, that must be a very unique experience because I think most of the founders that I speak to, it's, you know, just, it's a software company. It's, you know, like a widget on a website or enterprise software, but it's not out there in the real world. They can't touch it with their own hands, but you can. So what's that like, you know, being a founder, walking around and, and seeing this and using this yourself in your day-to-day life? It's definitely a lot of fun. I think literally having a piece of hardware that you can show people, they can interact with, makes people understand the product much, much easier. And then we've been doing this for 11 years now. So we kind of, this didn't happen overnight. So you just kind of see it growing over time. And it's still fun to to get pictures from remote islands or in, in some desert where you see a card reader and friends of yours just say, yeah, I've just seen a, a card reader on a tall mountain or somewhere in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> nice. Yeah. I can imagine that's very fulfilling and rewarding to see those and, and fun to see those. Now, I'm an outsider to this industry, but to me, it feels like and looks like this is a very noisy, crowded market and that it's you know it's somewhat commoditized. So what have you done with SumUp to really stand out and rise above all that noise and differentiate yourself with such a noisy landscape? We've been very true to our mission to basically empower small merchants all across the world and uh, build a world where everybody can build a thriving business and have been just very fair, transparent 
an easy for merchants to adapt. When some countries like Italy, we literally have like a 30% unaided brand awareness. Um, and I think that helps a lot in continuing to build the business. And if we look at that growth, that's obviously you know, in- incredibly impressive. And I think that's the type of growth that founders would love to see with their own companies. What do you think you've gotten right? You know, if you really reflect on that success, I'm sure there's many, many things that you did right. But if we had to pick out one to really highlight, what would that be? There's also a lot of things we did wrong. I think resilience and just sticking to it is a big plus. As a, I think literally for the first five, six years of the company, we were literally failing constantly and we're not wondering, uh, we're wondering how we can pay the rent in three months down the line. And what were some of those mistakes that you made? Is there one that you, know, you remember just being especially painful to deal with? So the funny story is the first card reader we had didn't accept Visa cards. It only accepted MasterCards because Visa said uh, just signing on the screen might be a security error uh, problem. And at the same time, because we were all about land grabbing and scaling, uh, we hired a hundred salespeople across Europe and uh, tried to basically sell this product, which actually worked relatively well in, for example, Germany, where we have like a big portion of debit cards, but the unit economics were totally out of whack because the revenue we made out of the merchants were, was way too small to basically sustain the, the sales team. And then we basically uh, pivoted from that one, reduced the whole sales team down to zero and focus very much on the marketing and basically going towards more towards push marketing kind of approach versus direct sales approach. Hmm. Makes a lot of sense. Now let's talk a little bit about money. So I know you've raised 1.5 billion, or at least that's what it says on the internet, which is a large sum of money. And I know there's a split there with debt and equity, but talk to us about conversations with investors. What do you think they're so excited about to back you with such a large amount of capital? I think to, back in the days was pretty much the vision and uh, the the way we approached the market. And we had like a ton of competitors. Or we were the first to launch in Europe, but we had like probably 10, 20 competitors within the first six months. And we were very much the one with the global footprint and we're going out pretty strong launching 10 markets up front. And most of the other people then died along the way. And I think today is we just have a very, very attractive profile because you have in payments very, very resilient cohorts. So the cohorts we see in payments, there's no secret small merchants all across the world, depending on the on the category in the market churn about five to twelve percent or so. But the beauty is that the payment volume that the surviving merchants produce would actually outlaw that churn. So we have net negative churn within our cohorts or like in the revenue cohorts. And that just makes us very attractive because since 2017 or so on, we are operating expense break even, which means that we can literally switch off our growth, continue having this revenue stream and being profitable to very profitable these days. And now last half a year, we've actually been fully EBITDA profitable. And I think that despite a pretty significant size and a good EBITDA margin combined with a 40% plus growth, make us a very attractive investment, I would say. Mm. Yeah, I can see that and can see why investors are so excited. Now, last couple of questions here for you before we wrap. What excites you most about the work you get to do every day? You know, you're what, over a decade into this journey. Do you ever have days where you feel less motivated or do you wake up just every day ready to run through brick walls? I'm pretty much running every day. The purpose is pretty strong here. So helping small merchants all across the world and also providing a Good environment for the 3,000 sum across the world basically strive 
and be fulfilled in, in what they do and helping merchants every day. And last question here, let's zoom out into the future. So we can say, you know, three years or maybe five years from today, can you just paint a picture for us for what that future looks like for some up and what the company is going to look like then? So we're coming from the payment space and in the last couple of years, we added software, so POS, online store invoicing, account and all of those things, and also more financial products. So like a card and a card and account and a little bit of lending there. So really attaching those newer products to the payment merchants and pretty much becoming the overall provider to, uh, to merchants on all of their financial and technology needs out there. Then also kind of growing a little bit, always being true to the smallest of merchants, but also going to the segment above. So helping uh, the next largest group of merchants there and just doing more of the same. I think the opportunity out there is still enormous and growing there. And I think the one that's a little bit more futuristic is this whole merchant consumer network building this out. We have like 3 million, 4 million daily consumer touch points where we provide them great service because they can pay by card even with their phone, unlike the restaurants you frequent. But I think there's more to be done there to making the transaction even more delightful, both for the merchant and the consumer. Amazing. I love it. Mark, we are up on time, so we're going to have to wrap here. Before we do, if people want to follow along with your, your personal journey you know, from a founder perspective as you continue to build, where's the best place for them to go? Yeah, just find me on LinkedIn. That's an awesome. One. Nice and easy. Mark, thank you so much for coming on, sharing your story and sharing some of those lessons that you've learned as you've built up this company. It's uh, been a really fun conversation. I've enjoyed hearing some of those stories from the early days and I'm sure our audience will as well. So thank you so much for taking the time and wish you best of luck in executing on this vision. We'll do my best. Thanks for having me. All right, take care. <laughs>